Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, like we uh, always say, we're recording in the uh, Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And today, uh, we're back together again after being apart for a few weeks, and wouldn't you know we have our recording equipment. We actually have the recording equipment. We're just not sure we know how to use it really yet. So what we're doing is um, we have a backup system plus the recording equipment and so we know that there's going to be a show that gets recorded. We just don't know on which machine it's going to be recorded. So if it sounds like it's always sounded then you know that we failed. <laughs> but if it sounds like, a, like that's, that's different, that's a little better, I can actually make those guys out now, <laughs> then we know that we've succeeded. So uh, anyway, each of us have a lapel mic on, and we uh, also have a mic in the center of the table, so we have no excuses. There's and we gonna... each have a, a fine pint. So. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Cheers. That's right. Glenn and I have ciders, and Tom has his, his, his IPA. He's, he's right. a night, straight IPA guy. I'd like to mix it up myself. Glenn is all ciders, just so you know. <laughs> anyway, well, let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Tom? Uh, Tom Price, um, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and occasional porter drinker. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He gets out of the rut once in a while. Anyway, and I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of, the Ma of Manchester, and I'm the author of uh, the, the Household and the War for the Cosmos, which just came out a, a, a few weeks ago, and is doing pretty well. Anyway, so uh, today is my day. And uh, what I want to talk about is a, is a subject that's really quite awkward to talk about. And the subject is LGBT networks in evangelical institutions. So now, why would I even raise this subject uh, and present it as a, as a, as a conversation, uh, you know, a subject for conversation on, on the podcast? Well, there, you know, unless you live in, I don't know, uh, an igloo in Alaska, you know that uh, we are just, at, we just finished Pride Month, so to, so to speak. And uh, we all know what that means today. Pride is one of those words that used to mean something positive. <laughs> you know, at least in certain contexts. Well, actually, before that, it meant something negative, but that's another matter. <laughs> well, it depended on the, yeah, it depended on the context. Depended on the context. Anyway, so... Uh, and then I've, I've just returned from the, uh, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America's uh, General Assembly. So there was a lot to think about related to these themes based on that uh, General Assembly. And if you are curious to, to, to sort of explore what went on at the General Assembly, you, could, you don't have to go very far. Just Google PCA, GA, homosexuality, and you'll have like five million hits. <laughs> so anyway, so there's a lot going on there. But, but what got me, you know, as I reflected upon my own sort of, uh, sort of background with the, the so-called community, the LGBT community, I, I, my mind went back to my very first experience. It was uh, with this group of people or people who identify or sort of are engaged in behaviors that we now sort of associate with that community or we, we do associate with that community. And it's in college that uh, I uh, 
I, my mind, my mind uh, journeys back to the experiences I had in college. And, and there was a, uh, I went to Eastern Nazarene College as an undergraduate. And while I was there, there were a number of rumors uh, concerning a uh, kind of homosexual lesbian network that was uh, there on the campus and that, that students were a part of. And I knew some of the people who were, you know, reported to be, to be a part of it, as well as uh, at least one faculty member. And I was uh, sort of a, you know, generous in my sort of estimate, or sort of my spirit. I didn't want to run, rush to any conclusions. I didn't want to, you know, think the worst of people. Uh, I defended people who were told, I was told were a part of this group. Um, I, you know, the faculty member in question, I, you know, I said, this guy's a good guy. I know him. I don't think that it's fair for us to, to talk about this. And, and maybe, maybe that was just fine. Maybe, maybe that was the thing I should have done. But in point of fact, in, in actual fact, there was one. And the reason I know there was one is because I actually met the ringleader about seven years later, and he told me all about it. And he was living a very blatant uh, life as a living as a homosexual very blatantly at that point. And here's this is the irony: I was actually speaking at a youth camp uh, in the Philadelphia area at, at a sort of a larger event, which was like a camp meeting. So I was in you know a world of revivalism and camp meetings and that kind of stuff. And I was the speaker that was addressing the youth, and this guy was there. And uh, over the course of the of the week, while we were while I was with him, I had and I knew him from college. It wasn't like I had met him for the first time. Uh, we got into a range of uh, we got into a number of conversations, and they almost always went in this direction. And uh, there were other things that uh, came out later on related to other people and their involvement in the network. And so the long and short of it is this: it was there, and it was a it was a. It was a bad thing in the sense, or in a number of ways, for obviously because this sort of behavior, this sort of activity, uh, sexual activity outside of marriage, let alone homosexual activity, is sinful. Uh, but this really messed some people up, and I know the people who got messed up through this stuff. Uh, so these are not healthy people we're talking about here. These are people who are damaged people. Now, I know that there are people who might be sympathetic to the LGBT community, and, and they would dismiss my observation and say that's just because we live in a society in which you know homosexuals and what have you are, are uh, shamed or you know, uh, blacklisted or what have you, you know, they, 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 they deal with the, 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 the problems that come from condemnation but I don't think that's the case in these situations I think these people were generally genuinely messed up by the activity itself so that's, that's when I realized that my, I was, I was uh, generous in spirit, but also naive. Now, there are a couple of other ex uh, experiences that I have, but not as, uh, not as a young, younger man, but as a, actually as a pastor. Um, there have been peop people from my church uh, here in Manchester, Connecticut, who have gone to uh, Gordon College and Gordon, or not, not Gordon, uh, Gordon College and Wheaton College, and while uh, attending those schools, got sucked into the underground LGBT networks and are now living, uh, in one case as a homosexual with this partner, and in the other case a, uh, a woman as a lesbian with her partner. 
In the second case at Wheaton College, uh, the, the, the seducer was actually the daughter of, wouldn't you know it, a uh, United Methodist pastor. So um, anyway, you know, having some, you know, kind of knowledge of what go, goes on inside the world of Methodism, you know, I'm not terribly surprised. But but anyway, uh, I, I was talking with someone just last week about this particular story, and and this uh, couple, an older couple, said, you know what, we know somebody who had this exact same experience at Wheaton College. Uh, they, they, a young woman went to this school, and uh, while she was there, she got involved in the underground homosexual network. Now, obviously, in, in each of these institutions, Eastern Nazarene College, uh, Gordon College, Wheaton College, the stated policies of the school are sound. Mm -hmm. They don't support this kind of thing. Uh, they discourage it. I imagine that, uh, you know, if the authorities at Eastern Nazarene College had had good information back in the day, this was in the 80s, there that would have led to suspensions or <coughs> expulsions. I don't know if that would be the case at Gordon College and, and Wheaton College today. But I do know that in both of those schools, you've got people who are trying to uphold biblical values with regard to, to sexuality. So the point is that's why these are underground. <laughs> so so these, are, these are networks that exist uh, without the school's permission. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. So if you're, you know, thinking about going to an evangelical college, be aware that there may be, I'm not saying there always is, but there may be an underground LGBT network there. And if you're a parent who's sending a child to one of those schools, be aware of that. Don't be naive. Don't think that just because it's a Christian institution or a conservative Christian institution or that the state of policy of the school reject this sort of thing or condemn that kind of behavior, None of that means that that doesn't exist. Now, with all that said, um, let's switch over to the situation in the Catholic Church. Let's change the sort of the, 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 the topic of discussion. Let's think about the clergy. Now, one of the things I've learned to, you know, uh, my chagrin over the past few years is I've gotten to know a number of conservative, socially conservative Roman Catholics is that there's great distress within the, the world of Catholicism concerning something called the Lavender Mafia. The Lavender Mafia is, is, is a, uh, a term that's used for what is believed to be a homosexual network among priests in the Catholic Church. And the people I know who are familiar with the Catholic Church and study it and uh, are Catholics themselves and write about it, the, what, the people I know all believe that this exists. In their minds, it's a, it's a certainty. Um, I had a conversation with a an Orthodox believer who was an editor of a magazine that uh, I've written for, and I, I said to him in the course of conversation, why, "Why didn't you look into the Catholic Church?" And he said, "Well, you know, when he was he was coming out of evangelicalism, he had, he had been you know raised as a Baptist, and you know how this this whole thing goes." And uh, when he got in touch with, you know, sort of Christian history, he decided, you know, I need to get tied into some a church that has a more sort of a, uh, sort of a direct and uh, clear connection to the tradition. So that, that's why he ended up in orthodoxy. And so my question was, why didn't you consider Catholicism? And he just said two words, Lavender Mafia. Hmm. That was it. Shut it down. He's not going to go there. 
Now, if you look at Rod Dreher, that's why he left Catholicism. Exactly the same, the same thing. Right. Yeah. So, anyway, perhaps this is old news to listeners. <laughs> but now, here's my question. The question is this. Why would it be unreasonable to suspect that the same thing is true among evangelical clergy? Why would it be unreasonable? I'm not saying it's the case. I'm, I'm just saying that it seems reasonable to me that, that there are the, uh, these networks uh, within evangelicalism among the clergy as well, and that, that there are people who are interacting with each other. And perhaps, again, now this is all speculation, but if the supposition is correct and that there really is an underground network of, of uh, homosexuals within a particular denomination, wouldn't it make sense that they would have at least sympathy for a, uh, a sort of transition within evangelicalism to a more sort of pro, uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, or more positive view of this particular community? The phrase you're looking for is open and affirming. <laughs> that's Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> so anyway, that's the subject for the day. A very hot topic, I know. I, I, I suspect that this particular show is going to go viral. <laughs> but anyway, you guys have any thoughts on any of this? Well, if you look at the uh, situation in the PCA, and I'm speaking here as someone who is not part of the PCA church, but if you, if you look at the situation there, the, the, probably the, the pivotal event at the General Assembly on this issue um, was a speech given by Greg Johnson, who's a PCA pastor. Now, I would say this is the pivotal event, not because Greg won the day, he didn't, but because the response that he got and sort of the, the um, shot across the bows, as it were, uh, that, that he gave, and, and actually along with this, a tweet that he has since deleted afterwards in which he said, all right, we've lost the battle, but we'll win the war. Uh, it's all the young delegates that support us. Um, the speech is interesting. I would strongly, if you're interested in the subject at all, go to YouTube and look for Greg Johnson uh, for the, at the General Assembly. It, it's an interesting speech on a number of levels. Um, First of all, what I will say is that it is decidedly short on, on theological reflection or argument. What it is, he, he draws a couple of bad analogies, but other than that, it is almost entirely an argumentum ad passionis, which means an argument from emotion. There's no rational discussion or anything else of the key issues that are involved. And yet, a lot of people have really picked up on it and talked about how thoughtful it was and thought-provoking it is and right. so on, when really it's nothing more than an appeal to emotion. Right. Um, he never addresses really the key questions. Oh, well, let's back up a little bit further. Um, if you look into Greg's background, what you will find is that he spent years denying that he was homosexual up until very, very recently. He was a key person as an in-the-closet homosexual in organizing something called the Revoice Conference, and it's only after that that he came out. 
Um, the Revoice conference was done at his church, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there was a conference at his church, right? Right. And in it, there was a strong advocacy for what they called gay Christianity. The idea here is that, yeah, uh, the Bible condemns homosexual behavior, so we should, we should stay celibate. But nonetheless, being gay is a real identity. It is a true gift from God. Essentially, it is a good gift of creation. Right. And therefore, the church needs to enrich itself by adopting the gay perspective without gay practice. Now, I would argue, first of all, that in our cultural moment, it's absolutely asinine to think that you'd be able to accept the identity without the practice. Right. Okay. But even more to the point, if, as Johnson agrees, homosexual activity is a sin, then why would it be appropriate for a Christian to adopt an identity built around desire to sin? Right. Other than we thrown the law of non-contradiction out of the window. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. Yeah, we, yeah people so, are all okay with that. Yeah. Because, so, you know... Right, right. So, it, so in essence, what we're seeing there is what I strongly suspect is going to be the direction that we're going to be seeing in evangelical denominations and churches, yeah. um, essentially adopting the culture's notion that your sexual preferences are are really the center of your identity, mm, right. and that if it that they're unchangeable and unchanging, and if it is in fact that how can you argue that there's anything wrong with it? Hmm. I'd like to point out that there are babies that are born addicted to crack. Right, right. You know, it, it, just because you're born that way doesn't mean it's necessarily good. And also the evidence that you are born that way is kind of lacking. But that's, another, that's a whole different subject. Right, right. What strikes me about it is it's hitting crucial worldview questions about what is identity. And then on top of that, it's also picking up on a theme we've talked about a lot, which is the loss of a sense of meaning and purpose, telos, in the world. Um, and along with that, the loss of logos, the loss of reason, in that the entire argument for it is based on a logical fallacy of the argument from passion, the argument from emotion. So these, these larger issues in the culture are feeding into the way in which these ideas are being expressed uh, and advocated within the evangelical church. Right, right. Yeah, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about this identity. Yeah, there's a, yeah, a few things uh, running through this. Um, and I, I, think, I think you both point out something very, um, you know, kind of bring to the, the surface something that, that uh, is very important, and that, that is the way in which the blurring of sound Christian theology and a, and a sound Christian metaphysic has lent itself to the kind of um, confusion that allows for the embrace of things that would have been clear-cut offenses to a classic Christian understanding of things. Right. Um, and, and they, you know, we, I think we're all familiar with the different strands of history that have led to this, and, and we've been hitting some of those themes in, in previous uh, talks. Um, 
yeah, there's a few points I kind of wanted to hit on. Um, I mean, one, one of course, is this the question of identity. I think I was just reading the most recent Touchstone magazine where they were talking about the re Michel Foucault's famous line that sexuality has replaced the soul yeah. in terms of being the integrative center of our identities, right. which I, I think would be, a, you know, almost, you could almost have a, a large uh, conversation on that because it seems to be one of the, the driving... It, our sexuality so so much who we are now rather than our soul our communion with the eternal God it's now our interpersonal communing with each other through sexual expression now there is a there is a profound truth there that is that our sexual relationship and our soul's relation to God are analogous um, but the problem is is the way in which the that's layered and, and structured because what happens now is the sexual, our, our sexual behavior and identity replaces and actually becomes the dominant in the analogy and the, the, the soul's relation to God becomes the minor. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, that's one point. The other point is the kind of wholly secular interpretation of, of, of Christian relationship to, to God and all other things. I mean, what you have here is people combing after the way in which their life now, especially in relational and sexual intimacy, is the predominant issue right. versus what it means to give up all and follow Christ. There's a, there's a, there's a contrasting view of salvation. Um, I know the reasons for the, you know, the kind of centering of, of Christian focus now on this worldliness. Right. We see it similarly in the issue of social justice and, and sort right. of the, the, you know, the, the evangelical left and its attempt to sort of uh, influence uh, classic evangelicalism and classic Christianity with what they would consider a fuller picture of salvation is not merely our, you know, the soul's eternal relation to the triune God and the form it takes in the here and now. For them, the here and now is sort of almost the end. Right. Um, and so, so they, they sort of put all the emphasis on what does it mean to live your fullest spiritual existence now? That's what salvation almost becomes. Right. Um, and that actually is a shift from the, a theocentric perspective to an anthropocentric. That, that, you know, what does it mean for me to live my fullest sense of my humanity now, that itself seems to be the center point of this kind of focus. So, I mean, these are kind of some of the theological issues, I think, that are, yeah. that are going think those, on here. And I think those are tremendously important. I, as a pastor, where I see this uh, kind of play, it's or sort of, sort of, sort of how things are playing out. Yeah, I'll take an IPA this time. Yep, which one? Sea Hag, Connerly, or the Founders? I'll take the Sea Hag. Sea Hag? Go with the Sea Hag. Sea Hag? I'm going to go with another cider. Okay. Okay. Serving so now, the point. That's right. So now, folks in listening land, you know that we're really in a bar. <laughs> anyway, uh, but as a pastor, what, what, what I think we, we have in terms of, you know, the situation on the ground. So... You've got a you've got a sort of a, a group of guys who are sort of hardcore conservatives for whom, you know, uh, the confession or classic Christianity or classical theism or what you know how whatever we want to sort of use as the thing that people are holding on to, 
they're willing to hold on to that to the end, man. They're willing to just die. <laughs> you know, if my church dies, hey, it dies. <laughs> and then you got another group over here for whom, you know, uh, social justice, you know, the, the evangelical left, they've got the same mentality. Yeah. They're willing to, to die. And if, yeah. if the church is going to die, it's going to yeah. die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but the muddled middle, they're mostly concerned about the, paying the mortgage, meeting payroll, <laughs> Yeah. You know, being able to report year over year that we have more people than we had last year, that kind of stuff. Now, of course, it's all sort of justified with, you know, Great Commission talk. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's right. But, but when it comes, when, 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 it, when the, where the rubber really meets the road is, are there more butts in the pews than there were last week? That kind of thing. And so what, they, they, what these guys do is they've got their finger to the wind all the time. They are just scared to death of taking a stand about anything. They're basically, you know, trying to say, okay, what's the prevailing wind? What's the, I call it culture surfing. So hmm. to mix my analogies up, you know, on the one hand, you're talking about sailing, now we're talking about surfing. But the idea is there's a cultural wave. Okay, now we got the latest cultural wave. It's the LGBT thing. How can we, how can we work this thing? Hmm. And, and then and there's sort of like a core set of things that they won't give up. But what is it? It's all internal. Yeah, yeah. I have my personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's. I think that is what you know. I, I, the pastors that I know that are dealing with churches that are complicated, because they all are committed to an evangelical uh, vision, yet that vision is starting to divide itself along certain lines. Right, right. And so they're trying to say, okay, what things can we accommodate? What right. things can we not accommodate? And that seems to be that sort of pragmatic take that doesn't just kind of get rid of everybody that but it kind of invites them along keeps keeps the numbers up keeps the direction going mm -hmm. and, I, and I do think in that and I'm talking generously here I think from from a lot of pastors I know that are committed to the gospel are committed to the scriptures for them they feel like they're gonna win them down the road yeah that's right that's right that's, so, that's really the lies we tell ourselves yeah as that's, a pastor. that's I think <laughs> one of the, again yeah. what you win them with is what you win them to that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, yeah. but the, the other the other part of this is again something that we've talked about before it's this this kind of biblical minimalism yeah what is it the what is the absolute bare minimum that we that we have to hold to mm -hmm. in order to be believers you know so if scripture um, or thank you thank you thank you um, if scripture or even more just the new testament or even more just jesus yeah. doesn't address something then do we really need to worry about it you know do we need to um, do we need to work out the implications into a of what is said into areas that it doesn't address? Right. And, uh, and the biblical minimalist says, no, there is no verse that says thou shalt not do X, therefore we can do X. Maybe it's not the best choice, but we can do it. There's nothing right. wrong with it. And, yeah, so, it, you know, this is where, you know, I'm a... I'm reformed all the way down, but if I need to quote a Catholic, I will. <laughs> and here's one of the points at which I will. Another, I was just reading the recent Touchstone, and they were actually giving a breakdown of the, the former Pope Benedict's article on the sex abuse scandal in the church. 
And one of his criticisms of Catholicism and what opened the door to its sort of embrace of the libertinism of the 60s sexual revolution was what he saw as the breakdown of the natural law. Right, um, And the, the, the move towards a view of biblical minimalism. And so while a lot of Protestants thought that the Vatican II was, oh, they're moving towards a sola scriptura, no, what it was doing is moving towards that biblical minimalism. And then he quotes an actual source from uh, Tyndall House written by evangelicals in Christianity today in which they basically said, well, because scripture doesn't directly condemn abortion or these particular issues, therefore these things are up in the air ethically, and they sort of went with almost the theological left on these issues. Yeah. This was evangelical. I didn't yeah. even realize this. Yeah. There were a lot of major evangelical voices, some of whom we still recognize today, that were initially in support of abortion. Yeah, yeah. and this is where I think Francis Schaeffer did a tremendous service to the evangelical world because he was one of the guys who mm -hmm. sort of said, hey, hold it, stop. This right. is nuts. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, the the other thing, by the way, within the Catholic Church, as someone who is a roaming Catholic, <laughs> um, <laughs> having I can accept that, <laughs> having, having grown up in the Catholic Church, yeah. Um, yeah. if you talk to most Catholics, at least to my generation, and I suspect today as well. Yeah. They will tell you that sort of at a gut level, they believe that the church is the clergy. Mm. The church can exist without the laity, that it, it mm. is the clergy. Um, and if you're a layman, you can participate in the church and get the benefits from that, mm -hmm. but really the church's identity is centrally the clergy. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, the gut level feeling mm. you get that you absorb growing up. Sure. When you take that kind of thinking and add the anti-Donatist, appropriate anti-Donatism, yeah. you get a really toxic mixture such that the church itself is the clergy and it must be protected at all costs. Yeah. If the sacraments, which are the critical thing that the clergy does, if the sacraments are work ex opere operato, in other words, if the uh, duly ordained priest does them, they work. They work anyway. Regardless of whether the priest himself is worthy, yeah, then what becomes the overriding imperative is even when the clergy is involved in sex abuse scandals, we need to cover it up to protect the reputation of the clergy because that's protecting the church. Yeah. And besides, it's not doing any fundamental harm because their sacraments still work. Yeah. You know, there, there's a kind of Protestant kind of version of that. Yeah. It's much more sort of functional and far less sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> but the way it works is, is, is uh, we have to cover for Pastor Bob because we don't want to kill, kill our local church. Right. Yeah. You know, so you end up. And if they have a personal relationship with Jesus, however <laughs> narrowly right. defined, right. then they're in in the camp. And so, well, yeah, and there's that. But then, but then, <laughs> but there's this. I think this common sort of uh, sort of fear that if we address these things to, you know, it's like there's. I can't remember how it's quite. You know how 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 it's uh, put, but uh, but the idea that uh, you know the cure uh, could kill you. In other words, we, we don't want to go too far with this cure. Right. We don't want to we don't want to get into things too deeply because you know it, it may destroy everything. Yeah. 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 So, that, so, that, so so you end up with this kind of complicity, mm -hmm. uh, this sort of uh, 
you know, sort of a, a silence, uh, sort of uh, you know, sort of uh, an agreement that we're not going to talk about certain things. And it, it, it's interesting because if I was going to take, and I, yeah, I think both of these points are v very important. But if I was going to take the, the original point I was making, that uh, from the touchstone where they were talking about Benedict, I think the argument from the reform side would be what we were developing over some, you know, some weeks, is that when we understand the, you know, what what uh, Benedict was calling natural law, what I would call sort of creative order and moral order, right. um, when we understand the centrality yes. of that, that yes. there are distinct so. natural kinds, they're meaningful. Right. and they have distinct ends, purposes and goals. When we understand that that gets vindicated in the resurrection, it does not get done away with. It moves right. towards a fulfillment and its, and, and its relation to union with Christ and God in eternity. That's another show. But nevertheless, in the meantime, those things have been vindicated, not done away with. Right. And because of that, that therefore means that what was, what was ordained in the Genesis ordering of things and set forth as the core pattern of things is not something that's variegated and colorful the way in which people want to start reinterpreting these things based on their kind of subject subjective identities right. or their, their kind of um, self-constituted um, selves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that we, we have to do a little demythologizing on is this notion of the autonomous self or the, the kind of the no-self of post-modernity, that, that these things are either self-constituted or amorphous and just waiting for a certain history to give them meaning. And that, these, that, that we need to challenge the anthropology going on in modernism and postmodernism and vigorous ways um, and, and not kind of shy away from addressing the fact that, that the, the view of humanity that is underwriting these movements in the church is simply flawed, pagan, and wrong. Right. And, you know, there's also the, the damage you know, sort of the, the wounded people, the, the people that suffer uh, due to these, uh, you know, ways of living, these sinful ways of living. I'm thinking of a couple of people. Um, one of them I had actually had a chance to get together with when I, when I was out in Dallas. It's uh, Robert Oscar Lopez. Now, Robert Oscar Lopez is well known for sort of kind of coming out of that world, you know, the, out of the world of, of uh, homosexuality, he, he had, you know, two mothers, quote, you know, he grew up in a lesbian household, it was, he was in, in that environment, had no male role models in the home, and uh, it did a number on him, mm. and, uh, you know, in the, in the course of my conversation with him, it was, it was a great conversation, he made a really good point, he said, you know, one of the, one of the things that, generally speaking, this is you know, he's talking to us, you know, we, we love ideas, we love the history of ideas and how things kind of get to a certain place, but he said, you know, all that's great, but what homosexuals really need is not an explanation of sort of the course of sort of a Hegelian <laughs> history of ideas, yeah, yeah. what they really need is help get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you're absolutely right. And so I, sa I said, you know, tell me about, tell me some more. Now, another person who is a wounded person is a uh, Maura Graylin Pete. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. Horrendous story. Just an amazing story. Her, her mother, of course, was a, a well-known science fiction writer, and you can 
still a celebrated one, but a, apparently a monster of a woman. Her father yeah. was a monster. Yeah, I actually read one of Marion Zimmer Bradley's short stories. Yeah, yes. yeah, right. And by the I, way, in case people are wondering, that's that's the mother. That's Moira's mother. Hmm. And when I read it, I remember distinctly walking away from it feeling like I'd been slimed. Yeah, yeah. That it, there was just. There was just something that felt defiling about it. It came out in the writing. Yeah. And I had no idea anything about her personal life, but, right. but it yeah. was, well, I mean, it was just, you know, the Moira story, which is well documented. It's not something she, you know, these aren't recovered memories. It's not something right. she's made up. Right. Um, there's objective court testimony and things like that. So what she book? says. What's the name of her book? Isn't it The Last Closet or something? The Last Closet is Moira's book. Yeah. Um, it's the, the, the abuse and things like that that were suffered by her in that household are, are, are beyond words. You see, you see, and now we've got a situation in which we've got this sort of uh, this uh, buffering where if you, if you begin to um, in, you know, get too close to, to people and question them and say, you know, you know is, is there child abuse going on here? Are there things are going on here? Immediately you're labeled a hater. <laughs> You know, you're, you're not you're not really sensitive. You're not loving and that kind of thing. Um, and that's that's the situation that I think increasingly many of the clergy who would identify more sort of evangelical liberals are guilty of. You know, they they just won't go there. They'll, they'll shut the conversation down. I've experienced this. They don't want to talk about this sort of dark side of the world that they're trying to sort of sympathize with and understand or defend. Or there's this, yeah, there, there's a sense of, you know, of love. And I, and I think, you know, one another area I think that it maybe it's worth doing some, uh, some, some different talks on is this notion of, Christ, Christian notion of love. Right. Um, let, like, let me just stop you right there. I almost don't want to even talk about the word <laughs> no. love. Isn't that weird? Here I'm a pastor, yeah. and it's been yeah. so drugged through the mud. It is. It's and almost like you can't talk about you love. You can't anymore. talk about it, but I think it's one of those those areas that um, is is where the equivocations are going on to such a degree that it allows for so many things to go on which otherwise wouldn't if we had clarifications on that. Um, because the way in which love functions is it usually gets kind of wrapped up into this psychological love. Right, it's right. sort of this affirmation, this acceptance, this welcoming, this inclusivity. Um, and as you note, it's all psychological. It doesn't have to do with the body. It doesn't have to do with the social that's order. Right. Nor does it have to do with the ends for which right. we, we are as human beings um, created in their good. So it's, it's more important oftentimes to make you feel welcome in, in our small space than it does make you welcome in the kingdom of God and right, eternity. Right, right. And so what happens is, is yeah, we, we start to say, well, the, you know, Love gets so blurred. Love is love. No, love isn't love. Right. <laughs> well, love has to be has to be uh, truthful. That's well to be yeah. love. And yeah. the number of, of things that are buried in the midst of this is is just stunning. So in the Catholic Church, it's a sex abuse scandal. It's a pedophilia scandal. It is not a homosexuality scandal, despite the fact that the vast majority of the abuse is homosexual. That's right. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has to do with something else. Right. Uh, right. Or you can take a look at, um, I forgot the guy's name, but there was someone who was fired from 
I think it was Mount Sinai in Boston. Well, I know who you're talking Harvard, about. Yeah. Harvard Medical School professor who was getting fed up with yes. all of the, the promotion of homosexuality and put an email out listing all of the physical problems that are associated with homosexual behavior. And not even just STDs, a whole right, bunch of right, other things. Right. And he got fired because he was being a hater right. um, for speaking the truth, the medical truth, right. on an email system at a hospital. Right, right, right. So, yeah, that's the kind of world we live in right now. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, yeah. So speaking the truth is automatically considered hateful, right. even though not speaking the truth is putting people in jeopardy of serious health complications. Right. Everything from colon cancer to fecal and urinary incontinence. Right, right. Yeah, this is a good segue to something I, I'd like to talk about, and that's the question of how do we address this stuff? How do we deal with this stuff? Now, you know, the title of this discussion is LGBT, you know, sort of underground LGBT networks and evangelical institutions. Now, how do we, how do we address something that's clandestine? Um, if you try, immediately you're accused of McCarthyism, right? <laughs> you know, going on a witch hunt or whatever. Now, I think it's a good thing to remind ourselves that McCarthy was right. There were communists throughout the United, the American, you know, sort of in our government, in Hollywood. He was, his suspicions were correct. And he, and, and uh, Whitaker Chambers, you know, the famous Alger Hiss case, uh, we now have access to the because of the public information, whatever, the freedom of information. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we now have access to the files and we've corroborated the accusations. Eastern European countries have records. <laughs> Soviet Union had records demonstrating that there really was a connection with Alger Hiss and all this, you know, all the stuff that was going on. So everything that was, it was that uh, Whitaker Chambers said was on the money. <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, in the popular imagination, the, the McCarthyism is a pejorative. You know, it's 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 as though you know this was just a bunch of stuff that was made up, and a bunch of people were blacklisted, and a bunch of people suffered. Now we need now today. It's very difficult for young people to understand what the world was like in the '40s, and the '50s, and the '60s, when there was a a real threat. Now today we talk about you know the threat to freedom coming from Iraq or Al-Qaeda. You know, in a way, it's kind of a joke. we got a bunch of guys living in caves in the Middle East, and they're a threat to the Western way of life. Okay, I get it. Now, when, I, when we were growing up, there was a real threat. They could blow us up. They could... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and they had an army that was a match for ours. And, <laughs> and, and, and Nikita Khrushchev, remember, in the UN speech, was took his shoe off and was beating the pulpit or beating the podium. We will crush you. We will crush you. <laughs> I remember watching videos of that in church. <laughs> there were guys out there who really could do it. Yeah. And they had infiltrated our government and they had infiltrated our, our you know, popular media and and they were they really were everywhere. Now one of them's running for oh, no. <laughs> and, and there was a, there was a there was a, a politician who dared to say the obvious, and his name was McCarthy, and he said we need to look into this, but now how is he remembered? 
he's remembered as crazed, conspiratorial. Yeah. So have you no decency, sir. <laughs> I know that. I know that line. So anyway, so. But the point I think we have to keep in mind is that even this little podcast that we're doing today might get us labeled as McCarthyites. Does that mean that there's nothing out there? Does that mean that where there you can have smoke without fire? <laughs> you know, is is there is is my my question the question that I raised the the rhetorical question I raised at the beginning of this episode is it just something that should never be entertained? And that question is, is it reasonable to suspect? that there are LGBT networks working underground among the clergy in evangelical denominations. And my, that, if you listen closely, if you parse out what I said, I didn't say there are. I said, is it reasonable to suspect that there are? That's, if you criticize me, criticize me on that point. You know, if you don't think it's reasonable to suspect that, that that's the case, Fine, make your case. I think it's reasonable to suspect that there are. Based on the fact that I have three stories that I can tell of an underground LGBT network in Christian colleges that prohibit homosexual behavior. Anyway, now, how do we go, how do we go about this? How do we do this? Well, I, the, the, the first thing that I would say is that there are a couple of there are a couple of caveats I would want to put in or, or limitations on this. Sure. First of all, I'm not sure how underground they are anymore. <laughs> right. Okay, so right. let, let, let's just be clear about that. Right. The fact is that evangelicals have always been cultural chameleons. Mm. We've always adopted the look and feel of the culture. Yeah. And right now the look and feel of the culture is, well, it's rainbow. Hmm. Okay. So... I, I think that it is, I think it's in many places open, and where it isn't open, whether or not there is an active network, given the history of evangelical uh, interactions with the culture, I would assume that there, there's a very great likelihood that there are a great many at least fellow travelers right, out right. there, because that's just the way evangelicals live the world. Right, right. And, and what of the evangelical left, your Tony Campalos of the world? Right. Uh, there's some that go back prior to me, but they're still around. Right. Ron Sider. Ron Sider, yeah. Um, I mean, he he friend me on Facebook the other day, and I refused to take <laughs> yeah, his well, friendship. That means you're no friend of mine. That's it. Well, that, that means you're getting that means you're getting some some hits. <laughs> um, he, but, but my point is, is that these people have been outspoken, and they have been very deliberate, and they really want to shape the the, the evangelical world in a certain direction. I've heard sure. Tony compile. He's a profound speaker. I mean, he can motivate you. You know, it's just funny. I, I had a friend, Roberto Miranda <laughs> in Boston. You know who Roberto is. Yeah, yeah. He told me years ago, his criticism of Tony Campolo, artificial heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I said, yeah. yeah. But, but go, go know, ahead, I'm sorry. But, but he could go to those, you know, you know, the old uh, Pentecostal outdoor conferences right, right, and he could right. stir the crowd and right, the right. next thing you know, they're lined up for social justice causes. That's right. Um, but, but my point is, is that, that uh, there has been an, because they think this is what, what they're up to is right, they think it's, it's consistent with the gospel, 
Um, they write books on it. They're very open about that. Um, but they are, they're, they're not... Oftentimes we think that they, you know, they kind of, they have their space and they stay in it. No, their interest is, their interest is converting the whole evangelical world right. to right. that vision. Um, right. and, and someone like Compolo, it's not simply socioeconomic. It is about social kind of um, acceptance of things that have been outside of historic Christian practice for right. centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Some, somebody, I think it was at the stream, did an article that was woke is the new saved. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's good. I was just with John's Mirac last week. Mm -hmm. we, we had some barbecue together. <laughs> That's <laughs> the it, best way to hang out. <laughs> yeah, Zmirak, this, this is my, this, this, Zmirak and I go way back. Zmirak is Pope Benedict meets Don Rickles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that works. That works. <laughs> I haven't met him, but that's great. I look forward to John, if you're here listening to this, yeah, I know you're laughing. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the problem that we're facing, it seems to me, is much bigger than just simply underground networks. It right. is the fact that every Christian's worldview is an amalgamation of the Bible and the culture. And the question is, which one has the upper hand? Right. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is a cultural moment in which LGBTQIA, whatever follows it, is the flavor of the day. That is the thing that is really dominating the entire cultural discourse in many, many ways. Right. Um, and, and, that, and that's why, along with the whole social, ju social justice warrior thing. And so the problem that we're facing is we've got a culture that is, in many ways, growing increasingly hostile to Christian truth. And yet our worldview is going to always be an amalgamation of the Bible and that. And, so and how do you deal yeah, with well, this issue? And this is where the, the pastors who are sort of like, you know, that I, I was criticizing earlier, the, 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 mm. the church growth sort of ethos or the church growth ideology, got their finger to the window all the time, trying to figure out a way to market a personal mm. relationship to Jesus to the mm. latest market segmentation, you know, mm. sort, sort of market, you know, sort of that they have identified. So they have identified the social, I mean, these people, they have no principles. The, well, they, now, let me take it back. The principle is church growth. That's it. <laughs> they, and, they, and, they, and they equate that with the Great Commission. My bigger church equals the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And this group over here, this social justice group or this millennial group or whatever, they're just one more market. Yeah. And you so I need to package. Yeah. It's Machiavelli, basically. Yeah. No, you know, yeah. no, how, do, how do you, you know, do that? I mean, we, I can have my list of criticism to Karl Barr, but one of the things I do not criticize him, and I think it's one of the voices that we as evangelicals need to hear, is he, he was insistent that culture is not revelation. Mm. He was insistent that he saw what happened when national socialism claimed to be part of the created order and moral order, mm. and therefore to be the interpretive frame for the gospel. And evangelical churches followed suit yeah. and were behind Hitler on this. Yeah. And he, this is where the Barman Declaration, which maybe we'll, we'll do next round, yeah. um, became so significant. Because, because he understood that when you, when you make culture or the cultural moment, the zeitgeist 
the, you know, the, the, the spirit of the age equal with the spirit of God, one runs into a situation in which there is no measure apart from the, the, the current moment. And when the current moment therefore starts to be that, the, the interpretive head over scripture, therefore scripture starts to take a back seat and the content of scripture starts to have to be filtered into the present moment, the zeitgeist of the age, and therefore becomes the way in which we address these issues. And so what happens? I mean, when Hitler claims that we are geist, we are the moment, we are, we are the point at which the Holy Spirit is at its fullest sense in the progress of human being, if you have no ability to separate yourself from that and, and evaluate the spirit of the moment, then, then really fate becomes, becomes God. Right. And, and therefore the moment um, becomes, you know, such that the scriptures have to accommodate to itself rather than the other way around. And Bart's point was, no, wait a minute, Jesus Christ, as right. presented in the gospel, is the measure. And he is not accommodatable. He is not someone, that, he's not someone who can be fixed into the cultural moment. He is actually the Lord of it, and therefore we have to evaluate all moments of time in light of him. So whatever his other faults, I think he was right on the money when it came to how, how do we move forward with this is we do not compromise on God's self-revelation in Christ as attested fully and authoritatively in scripture. I think that's the, that's the thing we can't wiggle away from in culture and cultural mood is never authoritative right. in the same way. Right. Anyway, we should probably wrap things up. We're kind of going a little long here. you have anything you want to say, Glenn, before we close? I think I've already said pretty much everything I've got to say for now. Okay. Anything else you want to say, Tom? Uh, I think that was it. All right. Well, I think I've said everything I need to say. I think it's pretty clear where we stand on things and what we fear is the case in, in sort of the world of evangelicalism. And we're, we're, we're hopeful, but we're concerned. Actually, oh, go ahead. I do have... Sure one thing to right. add. Speak the truth in love. There you go. You want to know what to do, that's what we've got to do. Right. The problem is we have interpreted speaking the truth as being hateful. Yes. So you cannot speak the truth in love both. We've got to be able, we've got to do it. We've got to be able to speak the truth and do it in a way that is as loving as possible, and if people take offense, it's not our problem. Yeah, we just had to accept that. And I, yeah. and I think I do have another point. Okay, sure, go ahead. <laughs> Henri de Lubeck, a Catholic theologian right, around right. the Vatican II, actually uh, talked about, he, he asked this question, he said, what was it that went from the gospel being something that actually liberated us to actually the gospel being something that we needed to be liberated from? Wow. And I think his point was that, that when this notion of freedom shifted in the Western world in particular, it had so severed itself from the gospel's understanding of freedom that it lent itself, it, it lent itself to, to a, a notion of freedom and autonomy that made the gospel and Christianity problematic. Wow. And I think that we can kind of revisit this theme, but I think this is what's going on here. 
Um, people want to be liberated from Christianity and the created and moral order. Yeah. They don't want to be liberated into its fulfillment in Christ. Wow, yeah. That's good, that's good. Well, I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to The Theology.